This is a Federal News Network podcast. SBOM. It sounds like a play on a word you can't say, but it stands for Software Bill of Materials. And that big executive order on cybersecurity from last May urged federal agencies to understand and use SBOMs as part of their risk management efforts. Joining me to explain exactly what a software bill of materials is and how you can use it, the chief technologist for cyber and technology at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, Dr. Georgiana Shea. Dr. Shea, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. And let's begin by discussing a little bit of your own background, because you spent some serious time in the Defense Department on cyber issues, correct? Correct. I've spent over 20 years working in DOD predominantly on cyber warfare-related issues. So really trying to understand what the adversary is doing, how they're doing it, and how do we protect our systems. And they probably have S-bombs. So let's begin at the beginning, then. What precisely is a software bill of materials? So just like in regular manufacturing where you have a bill of materials for, let's just say, manufacturing of a vehicle, it's the identification and list of all the parts that go into the product for well, software. I mean, software is made of lines of code, and then it's compiled it into a runtime application. So what can you say about it other than here's 10,000 or 100,000 lines of code? Well, so code is reused just like um, tires on a vehicle. So when you get a vehicle from a manufacturer, they're not going to make the tires themselves. They're getting them from someplace else. That's the same way software is developed. Over 75% of all software is open source. So even though you may be contracting with an organization to build software, they're going out to open source repositories and pulling in already functional pieces of code into that larger package that you're buying from them. So relative to, say, 30, 40 years ago when things were hand-coded by programmers in C or COBOL or one of those earlier languages. Today, pretty much it's an assemblage of open source objects, fair to say? Correct. All right. So the software bill of materials then lists what those objects are and the sources of them? Yes. So the software bill of materials lists, you know, who developed it, where it came from, you know, what particular software pieces are in there, the um, different fields. And this is one of the things that came out of the executive order to go through and standardize what those fields are, because it hasn't been one of those widely used standardized practices. So if I were to request an SBOM, I'm sort of picking the fields that I want, or someone's given me an SBOM and they're giving me the fields that they want to give me. So now we're trying to go through and make it a more of a, a uniform practice that's accepted universally. And if I buy a commercial product that I'm going to adapt for federal use or DOD use, how many items is typically on a software bill of material? Is it like 50, 10,000, 100 million? What kind of order of magnitude are we talking about? Well, it depends on the size of the software package that you're buying, but I can tell you that I did a um, small pilot project with an SBOM. I took an open source, publicly available module of code from GitHub online that is commonly used and incorporated into other types of software. And there were seven direct dependencies. So the SBOM might have then seven lists of you know, ingredients or, or components and the details behind it. But then once we started to dig into those seven and did the analysis, we then found that there were 900 dependencies. And this was a relatively small code that we had used. So if this is something much larger, you can imagine exponentially how many different pieces of code and writers and contributors are then actually making up the entire software package. So each function, in other words, say the login function or the data call to these five databases function that might be a standard function that exists right. as code, yeah. each one of those could have 
hundreds of possible dependencies that you would need to be aware of. If not thousands or tens of thousands, depending on the size, yes. And what form does the S-bomb take and such that one can make sense of what you're looking at with 100,000 dependencies or a million dependencies? Uh, so what form does it take? There's, I guess I would answer that in a generic sense that there's the manual version of an S-bomb. If you would require one, I can go through and, you know, write something up in Excel or give you a, a list on a piece of paper, but that's going to be pretty useless if I wanted to actually incorporate it into, you know, machine-readable processes, configuration management. So the recommendation that came out of the executive order and uh, my recommendation after doing this pilot was definitely a machine-readable format, and there's a couple of different formats out there the um, Cyclone DX, the Software Package Data Exchange, SPDX, and um, Software Identification Tags. We're speaking with Dr. Georgiana Shea. She's Chief Technologist for the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. All right, then, let's presume that as an agency, as a buyer, I'm receiving a machine-readable software bill of materials for my new whatever package. How do I then incorporate that into my risk management for purposes of cybersecurity and assurance that that software is not sending all my data to China? Well, there's a couple different ways you can use the SBOM. One is for risk management. Most organizations are following the NIST cybersecurity framework, and that starts with identify. So it's identify, protect, detect, respond, restore. And a lot of attention gets put on the, the protect piece. What kind of protections do you put into your system? But little attention really gets put into the identify piece of it. What are you protecting? How big is your enterprise? What's within your systems? So within the um, identify aspect of the framework, your asset management, your business environment, your governments, your risk assessment management strategy, it's understanding what's included in your software and then developing that risk management plan accordingly. Like if you don't know where it's coming from, then you really don't know if it's secure. So you should plan accordingly. Well, are there some sets of whitelists, for example, out there that you can compare against your SBOM and find out where the modules that you might be worried about are located within this package and where the ones you can trust are? I don't know of a central SBOM repository yet, but you know, I kind of see that emerging on the horizon. Once we kind of get this standardized and people start using it, then you can compare that. Once SBOMs are you know, continuously monitored and you can look at what the um, risks are associated with those different modules, then people can pull from those type of resources, which aren't established. But uh, you know, just a touch on what that means, the, you know, the whitelisting or the, the vulnerabilities. When software is typically looked at right now to determine, is this secure there will be a, a scan or review of the software to determine if it has any known common vulnerabilities or exposures, the CVEs. And those are the known vulnerabilities in software, like the SolarWinds, for example. Last year in 2020, there was not an associated CVE with the SolarWinds Orion platform because we didn't know about it. But that didn't stop the back door from being there. It was still there. However, in 2021, now when you look at SolarWinds, there is a CVE associated with it and there is a backdoor. So now we can say, oh, if we see that CVE, we don't want to use that software. What the continuous monitoring allows you to do when you have an SBOM, you can dig into those components of the software and do that analysis and look at those early lead risk factors that may lead to a vulnerability identification. You know, one being that, you know, maybe the person who's committing the code on the um, off-premises repository that you're pulling it from has a following from the Chinese offensive cyber organization. Maybe that's a guy that you don't want to get code from. 
maybe we don't want his little time function module in your code or the fact that there's um, not a lot of maintenance time put into the software or there's license issues between the different modules that you're seeing. There's a lot of other factors in software that can lead to issues that become vulnerabilities and could compromise the integrity of the overall software package. So it's difficult when you say, you know, whitelisting, because we can only go through and whitelist and identify what we know. And we don't know until we discover something like a backdoor in SolarWinds. Yeah, those pesky unknown knowns or known unknowns or whatever they call them. (laughs) So, for example, then you could also tell, though, that if the SolarWinds components are in there, if it's 4.5.1, I'm making this up, it should be 4.5.2, which is post-breach. And you could at least find out and say to the vendor, well, can we insert 4.5.2 here and then we'll be okay? Right. So that's a great example. Or uh, another example, Huawei is on the list of um, OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control, as a sanctioned entity that we don't want to use their technology. So maybe there's some Huawei libraries floating around in some of this open source code or modules that you're ingesting and you don't know that. So now you're actually having legal issues if this is discovered, but it wasn't reviewed and you don't really know where this is coming from. And in receiving an SBOM, who should receive it? What function in an agency should be responsible for using it for risk management? Is the chief information security officer? Is it the contracting officer? Who should really assume the ownership of the SBOM? Well, I don't know about ownership, and I think that would depend across different organizations, but I do want to kind of pull on what you just said about the contracting officer. So we're talking about security and the risk management process with SBOM as a tool, but there's also a compliance piece of this as well. So if I'm purchasing software from an organization, I'm going to have requirements with that software. I want it to be secure. I want it to not have Huawei technologies. I want it to meet certain requirements, but I want it to be maintained. I want it to be updated, all those kind of things. But there's really not a way to go through and ensure that compliance. But with an SBOM, if you're conducting continuous monitoring on that SBOM, you can see what's happening to those software dependencies, that software package as it's being developed and then once it gets delivered. So you can actually then go through and ensure compliance. So from the contracting standpoint, it's a vital tool. From the CISO, uh, the security officer, it's also a vital tool because you can then incorporate it into your defensive cyber operations. You know, I talked about the identity function of the NIST cybersecurity framework. If you know the news came out tomorrow about the SolarWinds hack and the Orion platform being breached, I don't know if I have Orion platform in my network. Maybe I know I have SolarWinds, but I don't know Orion. I I don't know that word. But if I have an SBOM that lists all of those different things, as the threat model that I'm following is being updated with new discoveries of vulnerabilities, I can quickly go through and assess what's vulnerable within my own enterprise. So over time, then, you could almost build an inventory of SBOMs of your entire software inventory. And that might, I would imagine, help guide not only risk management, but also the continuous process of pruning applications that you just don't need anymore. And agencies are always dealing with, what do I do with all these applications that you know, maybe one small group still uses after 20 years? Correct. And what's your sense of industry best practice at this point with respect to the use of software bills of material? So industry practice right now, the software bill of materials from the developer could be closely integrated with the configuration management process of software development. 
So for them, it's a tool to go through and track what's being developed, where it's coming from, when it's getting changed, the integrity of each new update. And then that same list of information could be handed off to the customer, which then, you know, as I mentioned, is great for compliance, great for risk management, great for your defensive cyber operations capabilities. All right. And what about the agile methodology that companies and industry and government are so wildly embracing as you develop these short scrum-related modules of functionality every two weeks or every two months? Should a software bill of materials be generated along with those so that even though you're not buying a commercial package, you're doing development in modules? Should each module have an SBOM that you can refer to later on, maybe two years from now, when you've got a great big piece of software finished? Well, I like things being recorded, like accountability, I like provenance of software. So I would say yes. And when you talk about agile, you know, there's been a lot of agile development, a lot of move towards um, DevSecOps, your development security operations, uh, software development. So it is that you know, CI, CD pipeline, your continuous integration, continuous development of little pieces of code coming out and um, producing different functionality. That's what they're doing in-house, actual developer. They're still going through and adding on that the open source. So that might not be going through their pipeline of development. So what they're doing in-house and what they're taking from out of the house to augment that pipeline, you know, should definitely be captured in their SBOM. And there's, you know, different ways you can do this. One of the things I talked about in the in the pilot was incorporating some type of, um, you know, blockchain capability where, you know, each edition becomes a, a block and then you have that chain of custody like, you know, block to block assurance of, you know, what was done and, and what's there so you know what you're getting at the the end for the delivery. Got it. So that means that some part of the metadata there could even point to the specific developer that worked on a module. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And the other question I had was with respect to cloud applications. A lot of agencies are saying they are, and many of them are, in fact, moving to software as a service using commercial providers for various software functions. Should you be able to demand from the cloud provider or the owner of that software that you're not buying, but you're really using on a user per user per hour, whatever basis, should you be able to get an SBOM for those packages? I believe if you're paying somebody for something, you have the right to demand whatever you want. So I don't know if they will comply with that, but that's my personal philosophy. And if I'm going to integrate their services or their software into my system and it's going to go through and extend my attack surface area, then I'm taking on a risk that I'm responsible for. So I'm going to try to mitigate that the best way I can. And the other big thing that everyone's talking about in that May executive order on cybersecurity is zero trust. And what's the bridge between SBOMs and zero trust? Well, NIST has a document out on zero trust and what the tenants are on zero trust. And I was going through reading these and, um, you know, there's one in particular and I'll, I'll read it. It's the enterprise monitors and measures the integrity and security posture of all owned and associated assets. So, you know, when you ask how does zero trust work with the SBOM, the software is your asset. That's the lifeblood of your organization, your, your enterprise, your systems. So if you don't know the security posture of your software, then you're fundamentally failing from the very start. So zero trust is a, a concept that can apply there, you know, and enabled through the SBOM. One of the other tenets for zero trust, the, the enterprise collects as much information as possible about the current state of the assets, network infrastructure, and communication and uses it to improve the security posture. Well, 
again, you know, software is an asset of your enterprise and of your system. So you should be collecting as much information as possible. And when I collect as much information as possible, you know, I've already talked about how the CVEs are a point in time and we may not know what those vulnerabilities are yet. So there's a number of different other types of attributes within the software that give indication that this may be a shady, high risk software that you don't want to incorporate into your low risk tolerance system. All right. So then the message for agencies is get on top of your software bills of material so you don't get software bills of goods. Yes. All right. Dr. Georgiana Shea is chief technologist for the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to her SBOM technical note at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, 
We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. 
and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.